Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John Kaplan here with five-time CRO and author of the wildly successful book, The Qualified Sales Leader. John McMahon. Johnny, how are you? Cap, good morning to you. I'm excited about talking to our guest today, which yeah, is so, very well. And yeah, uh, it's always cool when we have a when we have a, an old friend join us. So so let's talk, uh, let's introduce Jim Baum. And Jim has over 25 years experience growing and managing cutting-edge technology businesses. As an operating executive, his career includes building highly successful organizations, bringing businesses to scale, IPOs, and a multi-billion dollar exit. Jim is passionate about entrepreneurship and helping to build successful uh, enterprises around exciting market opportunities. He currently serves on a range of corporate boards and uh, from innovative startups to fast growth pre-IPO companies to publicly traded companies. He's a trustee at Worcester uh, Polytechnic Institute, as well as a lecturer in entrepreneurship at MIT Sloan School. Uh, Jim previously served as president and CEO of data warehousing and analytics company Netiza. In 2007, Jim worked to take Nectiza public, ultimately driving the nearly $2 billion acquisition of Nectiza by IBM. Uh, Jim also led Indeca's uh, early rise from tiny startup to leading provider of innovative information access and delivery software solutions to the global 2000. Indeca was acquired by Oracle. In 2011, and prior to Indeca and Netiza, he served at PTC, where we had the pleasure of uh, uh, going to war with him every day as executive vice president and general manager. So over the course of his 11-year tenure, he had the opportunity to manage roles across nearly every facet of that organization, helping the company grow from $11 million to $1 billion in revenue, quite a background, Johnny McMahon. Say hello to our friend, Jim Baum. Jim, good to see you again. And you know, by the way, that Kaplan pronounced Worcester. I was hoping you were going to love it. You got to do it. I was going to jump in. Clearly, you got from around here, Massachusetts. John. <laughs> That's oh, the man. first clue. Oh, nicely buddy. done. Yeah. Yeah, it's Worcester, John. It's Worcester. I know it. I have family that lives in Worcester. And after I said it, I'm like, how do I go back and do it? Worcester. Yeah. Where's yeah. that? It's actually, Worc it's actually Worcester. There's Worcester. no R on it. Yeah, because yeah, you can't Worcester. put an R on the end. You got to take the That's R off. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, well good to see you, Jim. I said a very kind intro. 
Great to see you guys. Thanks for the very kind intro. I was sitting here wondering what Jim Baum you're talking about. But yeah, buddy. <laughs> hey, so thank you. So, Jim, one of the things I've always loved about you, let's dive into this, is like your background. You know, I remember, you know, you started off um, having a very, very technical background. And then, you know, what that's turned into is, you know, CEO, investor. And so how do you think that background gave you advantages and helped you maneuver in your career? Yeah, I mean, I'm an engineer, man. Right. I was trained as a mechanical engineer at Worcester Polytechnic <laughs> Institute back in the day. And, oh, uh, got my uh, master's in mechanical engineering. And then I went to work for a little startup company called PTC. Right. You remember that one? Yeah. And uh, had an amazing run there. And I, I and I, I just think that, um, you know, we all learned so many lessons in that environment um, and, and from my perspective as a sort of technically minded person, you know, I, I do, I do tend to think kind of, uh, you know, product first in, in my thinking, when I, when I look at a new opportunity, when I look at a, uh, a company, um, my, my head, my mind immediately goes to, well, tell me about the product. What does the product do? Um, but I, I learned pretty early on to not get too caught up in, you know, the, the details of the technology and think a lot more about what does the product do, but how does the product create value for somebody mm. and how is that value manifested? And I think that technical background really sort of gives you the ability to um, have a, an opportunity to kind of substantively evaluate that, right? And substantively think about, okay, I hear the value prop. Do I believe it? Can this thing actually do that, right? Does that make any sense? Where might there be, you know, hiccups in that story? You know, where might that not work? And so I would really say, John, that the, the technical background um, has been extremely helpful, uh, in my career, right. And, and in our careers where, where we've all been, which have, I've, I've been a hundred percent of my career in, you know, high growth venture backed enterprise, you know, B2B software environments. Right. So it's really been, uh, an area where the value prop has had to be super tangible and, and very achievable because it's a very critical buyer. So, so I went, so, so I went to Boise State and Bowling Green, and not to Worcester uh, WPI. So, any advice that you could give? Because, in all seriousness, we we do have, you know, a lot of technical folks um, that that listen to the podcast, and and um, any advice for today's. Um, people that are more technically oriented that are looking to get into, you know, revenue builder roles. Uh, any advice for that listener today? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think John, that um, I, I often see super smart technical people get a little bit lost in the technical weeds. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and not to, um, you know, not to downplay the importance of technology and the 
quality of the technology and the architecture and the systems that are used and the way they're deployed and the way they scale and all of those things. But on top of all that, there's an end user, right? There's a person, there's a human or a system um, that needs to somehow derive value from what this technology is doing. And so I, I, I really think the advice is um, get to know the customer, get to know the use case, get to know and deeply understand the value. And the value is not my system scales or um, I've used the latest you know, ML technology or I've figured out how to effectively implement you know, um, AI in my platform. That's not the value. And many people do make those statements as value statements, right? Those are sometimes valuable when you're raising money, right? Because people kind of think you're on the bleeding edge, but the customer doesn't care, right? The customer needs to solve a problem, understand the problem, figure out how this technology can or cannot solve it and use that to drive your thinking, right? And honestly, that, I mean, I remember, you know, we all, we all talk about some of our experiences back in the 90s at PTC. We were all together there and, and there were a, a lot of learnings. Um, I always put the learnings from PTC in both the positive category, you know, things to do and the, the, the anti-cat things not to do, right? <laughs> and we, we both have that, right? And, uh, and, and in the things to do, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, I was a young, uh, you know, technical manager and I remember Steve Walski telling me, go out and talk to customers, right? And I took that advice, I did it, and I, I got to learn the customers. And it was probably, as a young person, the, the most important thing I could have done to help set the stage for things to come. Yeah, that's the one thing I always admired about you, Jim. You know, you always were in front of the customers with the sales force. And you, even though you might have had, as you described it, a product focus, you were still arm in arm with us, you know, on those sales calls. And that really admired that about you, but talk a little bit more specifically about how you think that influenced you in future roles. Um, well, I think, I think John, you know, specifically talking about kind of the, the, the technical influence, um, as I went forward in my career, like I said, I, I always kind of had a, a product um, out point of view, right? I'd always sort of start from there. What's the product do? And I think that served well in terms of um, being able to pick companies and look at technologies and have some confidence that they can deliver what they promise, Right. Um, because there are a lot, as we all know, there's a, there are a lot of dead bodies out there and a lot of failed technology implementations. And so there definitely was some importance in having an ability to discern, you know, good from bad, especially in an early stage company setting. Right. So when you, you know, when you look at uh, companies that are more established, you know, maybe the series C, series D kind of investment stage, venture investment stage, this stuff's pretty well figured out, right? But early on in a company, um, you know, you can sort of categorize risk into a few different buckets, 
there's always market risk, right? Which is, is there really a market for this? Can we find the, can we find the, uh, you know, repeatable go to market strategy that creates value for people and grow it? But there's also always technology risk, like will this thing deliver? And so I think having a technical background in an early stage company gives you an ability to assess technology risk, right? But there's a third category of risk, um, which is my favorite, and it's probably our favorite collectively of the three of us, which is that execution risk, right? I always felt like while I could evaluate technology risk, I'm not a developer, I'm not a computer science person, I'm not a you know practicing engineer, so I'm not going to fix it, right, when I get involved in a company, but I'm going to recognize whether or not the people are there who can build the technology. And I'm going to recognize, you know, I'm, I'm not easily, uh, you know, BSed, right, and can understand sort of the technical nuance of stuff. And I think that's the value that someone with a technical background brings. But then you take all these things we all learned together uh, over the, the decade of the 90s and before and since, um, and you put it in this execution risk bucket. And that's my favorite one, right? Because that's the one we know how to control, right? We can control execution risk. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, when I looked at, for example, um, when I left PTC and went to Indeca, right? Indeca was, um, you know, it was a, a very cool technology, very interesting. You know, it was a... Um, <laughs> you'll love you guys will love this it was an acyclic directed graph implementation in memory that's what it was and and so you really got to ask yourself the question uh why does the world need a graph database in memory like what does that do and that was one of those things where you know we were able to look at, te at the technology and say this is very interesting now let's figure out the market for it. Let's figure out who needs it. Let's figure out how it can create value. That's a very different strategy than somebody who comes at it from purely a go-to-market or market strategy perspective. You know, in that scenario, we looked at it and said, this is a great tool for e-commerce, right? This will help customers find more stuff online. And the thesis was, if they can find more stuff online, they'll buy more stuff online. And we could prove that. So we went to Tower Records was our first customer uh, that was doing e-commerce with us. And um, we proved with them that they could more effectively merchandise product and increase sales and increase profits. Um, and we did it again from that sort of product perspective out. Now, if you come to that from the perspective of, um, you know, purely go to market, you know, the traditional kind of MBA perspective, you'd look at that and say, well, there may be an opportunity in e-commerce and maybe improving e-commerce search would, would be a good solution. But I don't know that you'd ever get to an acyclic in-memory directed graph, right? So, so uh, anyway, those, those things were, I think, good examples of where, you know, you sort of apply the technology mindset and figure out how you can use it in a business setting to create value. I always come yeah. back to that point, by the way, John, creating value, right? Yeah, I was just going to say that you keep coming back to creating value. And I think that's where a lot of startups get lost you know you see their product and it looks like it's a it's a solution looking for a problem is the way that i put it because it's a great technology it might be differentiated in some ways but that differentiation doesn't solve any pains for the customer so it's not bringing any 
quantifiable value to that customer. And that gets lost in a lot. And you just keep coming back to that value prop part of the, of the uh, equation. Yeah. yeah. Technology looking for a home, we used to say, right? Yeah. And um, if, when you can find the home, which we found for the in-memory graph, it can be very powerful, but there's no guarantee you will. And if you don't look at it through the lens of customer value creation, you never will. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, as you grew through the ranks, Jim, some of the maybe one or two lessons you learned at each level. So when you were, let's say, a VP at PTC, what's the number one thing you take, you look back and say, this is one thing that I really learned. And then when you went to the CEO role, what's the one thing that just sticks in you? Like, that's something that I really learned. Well, I think there's, I would say there's one overarching lesson that transcends um, level, right? And it's people. You know, as a, as a young man, as a young uh, sort of person growing in the organization at, at PTC, I had an opportunity to experience my, my first job as a manager, right? So I was the, um, um, I think the title was manager of manufacturing applications or something like that. It was a product management job and it created a place where I had to hire somebody for the first time in my life. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we probably all remember being in that position, right? Sure. sure. And, you know, like I, I knew all about the software and I knew about the customer and I knew about, you know, how to make a, you know, a, an end mill move in three dimensions through a piece of metal, right. To create a part. Right. But, but actually hiring somebody was, uh, a little bit of a daunting challenge, right? And so um, the the lesson, I, there a couple of lessons that came from that, and this was sort of that first hire lesson. Um, I was 20 whatever years old and I was interviewing people more than twice my age. Made no sense to me, right? Like, why would these people want to come work for me, right? How could this possibly be? And I really had to sort of get over that just mentally, right? Like how, why, why would they do this? And, um, and, and I, and I learned, um, you know, that that was sort of not all that important to the people who we were interviewing. What was important was a number of other things, you know, the job, the relationship with the company, the relationship with the team they were working on, the quality of the product and customer offering. And there are so many other things that were motivating to people to want to come and work in that environment. And it really, they didn't care that they were going to work for some 20, whatever year old kid, you know, who was just getting started. And so uh, I think, you know, in that there's a, a set of lessons around kind of the human psyche, right. And what makes people want to come work in an environment. And so those lessons came out uh, loud and clear for me from that stage. But as I grew, you know, things change, right? Um, those first few hires in that role, we were a working pod, right? We were all doing work. You know, my job was to sort of coordinate and organize and do, right? And make it happen. And then as you grow, suddenly you're hiring now, not individual contributors, but you're hiring managers. 
And those managers have that job that you just had. And you've got to figure out how to not keep doing that job. Otherwise, you're going to undermine your manager and they're not going to want to work in that environment. Right. You've just created a bad environment for them to be in. Right. Yes. And so you have to learn, um, again, how to sort of manage your own behavior, because as a person who starts at that in those early stage roles, you're so used to doing everything, right? Getting your hands dirty, as they say, and working through the problems yourself. And if someone else can't solve it as fast or as effectively as you, you just solve it yourself and move on, right? That doesn't work as you scale. And so, you know, the lessons I took away from that were, I think, lessons around what motivates people to work in an environment Lessons around, you know, my own behavior as I grew and managed managers and then managed managers of managers and ultimately hired executives. And in every case, they were all way smarter than me, you know, in the jobs that they were doing, in the roles that they were filling, you know, the the sales leader that we hired at Indeca and at Natiza these people knew an awful lot more about selling than I did for sure. Right. The marketing leaders, the same, the engineering leaders, the same, the, the CFOs and finance people, the same, the customer success people, the same, they were experts in their areas. And so you have to grow into a role where you become less of a manager and more of a leader. And I think that's the journey, honestly, is growing from manager to leader. And as a leader, your job is to hire the best people to fill the leader, the other leadership roles in the company. Does that make sense to you? I mean, that's um, no, hundred percent. Just going back though, to your, when you were first manager, you're a young person and you see these, you know, older people that, you know, you're interviewing. I've also seen some managers get lost in what I call like imposter syndrome there. They really can't believe Hey, I'm, you know, 25 years old and I'm managing these people that are like 35, 40, 50 years old. And they it really affects their decision making because they start to question themselves as to whether or not they're making the right decision versus somebody that's maybe sometimes twice as old as them. That's telling them, well, no, this is the way we ought to go. So that becomes a real challenge and a real burden to some people in that in that first role like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very real phenomenon. Um, you know, this, this idea that, um, I don't know, it's a lack of confidence, I suppose, uh, maybe a lack of conviction, um, this imposter syndrome idea, it's very real. And, and it's probably exactly what I described, right? It's probably the right word for it. You know, what yes. I described as a young person, Yes, because you feel like, uh, at least my generation, our generation, you know, I was raised to respect those who were older than me. Right. And it's sort of built into your psyche. Um, and so I'm hiring this, you know, 40 something year old guy. Um, and I just I have to assume that he is just much more experienced and has better perspective and, and sort of knows better than I do. And in some cases, that's true. And that's where you've got to create an environment where those people can run with their experience and their knowledge and they can feel successful and they can feel like they're adding value. Um, but in other 
areas of that relationship, that's not the case. And you have to recognize that you have the management and leadership abilities to uh, to take that organization where it needs to go. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. We had a SEAL team commander on. He talked about dynamic subordination. And if you're operating as a team, to what you just pointed out, at any moment, depending upon, and this has to go back to the leader understanding their people, at any moment, the person that has the best assets or knowledge or skill of that area, they could be the leader. And then the leader is actually subordinate to that person. And that creates this dynamic subordination, but it's also what gels the team because they know that then they have the freedom to step up where they know how they have the strengths. And that again, goes back to the leader, you know, not thinking that they know everything and they make all the commands. Yeah. Yeah, it makes the hierarchy sort of fungible, right? And I, you know, I've seen in in executive teams, um, you see this in good executive teams and successful executive teams. You see this all the time, right? It's a it's a group of people who really complement one another from a skill set perspective, oftentimes from a from a perspective point of view, right? Different people having different views on the world and different experiences that have gotten them there. Um, and they and they recognize that and they respect that and they trust that in one another um, and they make decisions accordingly. Um, but at the but but I will say, and you know this, you know, at the end of the day, a, a decision does have to be made, <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes you can you see these environments where you know, it's they they feel uh, very good in terms of everyone's ability to contribute, right? But but ultimately, you know, no decision gets made, or weeks go by, or months go by, or years go by without something conclusive coming out, and that comes back to the leader, right? So even in the model, the SEAL team model that you described, that leader is still has to be in a position to sort of step back in and take an action or force a decision if a decision's not coming. And I feel like in the leadership roles that, that we've all worked in, that's a big part of our job, right? Is to just make sure that, you know, if we don't drive complete consensus amongst the group, or if there isn't a natural leader to take the role on some decision that needs to be made, we have to make sure that that decision happens. That's another lesson from early on, right? I mean, we used to, um, you know, we would make decisions, uh, as as you know, very, very quickly at PTC. Um, and then sometimes those decisions might change, right? Like a couple of weeks later. <laughs> yeah. I, and I remember I remember us criticizing our leadership for that, right? Like, what are you talking about? Like last week we were doing something different, right? And the answer was always, well, I now have more information, right? I now know more. I learned more. I have more information to make a better decision. And there's really something to that. We may have um, not made the optimal decision, but we made a decision and we acted and we pushed forward and we learned more. And then we iterated. Right. Super important. And super important from the aspect of we didn't tie that decision to our egos. We said, hey, I now have more information. I made I made the wrong decision. I'm not going to hang on to that decision with my ego. It's best for the organization to go the other way. Let's go. I made a mistake. Let's go. Or to your point, I just have more information and it makes more sense to go in a different direction. But I think too too many of your, of other companies, I've seen the leaders make a decision 
tie it to their ego and really like clamp down, even when in the face of more information, they don't want to change. Well, John, how many times have you in your career have you taken advantage of that fact when someone has absolutely hung their career on a decision they've made for a piece of technology that they've embedded in their infrastructure? Right. I mean, this is human nature. Right. Yes. It's a it's a skill. Uh, and it's a, it's probably a life's work in many cases to be able to set that aside and become objective and see facts and see truth in a plain light to be able to have as unbiased a decision-making process as possible. And we all know that humans behave this way and we absolutely use this in our go-to-market strategies, right? right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's just no doubt about it, right? I saw it all the time with people who bet their career on Oracle, right? And, you know, we're trying to change them away from Oracle. And we would take advantage of the knowledge that that was the way these people are thinking in order to build a strategy around how to convince them to change or how to find a crack in the organization where we could change. So, yeah, it's a, it's a basic human fact. I think a basic human trait that's um, a really useful one to understand. Jim, do you have, um, you've talked a little bit about people transcending roles versus experiences when John asked you that question about some of the things that you've seen over the years that though we kind of came back to the people you just highlighted um you know being careful not to tie decisions to egos you've had a tremendous amount of experience seeing great leadership and bad leadership uh marginal leadership over the course of your career what are some of the things that really stand out to you as other leadership traits that um, that you saw really make a difference in, especially when it came to, you know, growing and scaling companies? Are there any that stand out to you um, other than what we've talked about? Yeah, I think there are a few things, you know, I, I, I will say, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of my career in earlier stage settings, you know, kind of um, series A investment and beyond. So sort of that just finding product market fit. I spent a lot of time there, especially, you know, later here in my career. Um, And I'll tell you, there's one thing that stands out that I'll point to that we haven't talked about. And, And I would say it's the, it's the belief of the leader. Right. And, and, you know, the things that I've seen that have made early stage companies uh, survive, survive a lot of crap, right. A lot of challenges with, you know, missing quarters, you know, economic impact, competitive impact, um, the, the belief, the conviction, the strength of the founder or founders is just not to be underestimated as a force for building the company. Um, you know, one, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, one example is a company that I was on the board of uh, several years ago, Boston-based company in the marketing technology space. And um, it wasn't going great. You know, they, they had raised money. They had an interesting product. Felt like a nice to have, not a must have, right? 
Um, we had some customers, they loved us, but they didn't, you know, they, we didn't have a good upsell path, you know, and new customer acquisition was a challenge, not a disaster, not going great. And we got a, an inbound and, and the company needed to raise money. Right. And so we got an inbound acquisition offer that was, um, also not great. You know, it was sort of okay, kind of face saving, you know, kind of hold your head high and exit the company, sort of an exit. And uh, without exception, every single one of us on the board told the founders, you should take this deal. Like we should do this. This makes sense. Right. But, you know, and, and this, this is a credit to the investors that were there. Um, but it's up to you guys, right? You guys decide, but we think you should do this deal. And those guys, the, the two co-founders, they went away and they thought about it over the weekend and they came back on Monday and they said, we're not doing the deal. We're going to keep going. We're going to grow this. And everybody kind of took a deep breath and said, well, okay, you know, uh, we'll, we'll keep trying. <laughs> and those guys just powered through. I mean, they just got, I mean, they continued their passion, their belief, and um, they probably worked even harder. Ultimately, the company was sold to um, a very large uh, marketing technology company um, for a huge return uh, on the initial investment. I mean, it just—it was just an amazing transformation, and and they were right. They just needed more time. You know, the market wasn't quite ready, the messaging wasn't quite right, and their perseverance carried it through. Turned into a great return for the investors, a great return for the founders, um, and a big win. And and so. I never underestimate that leadership characteristic, right? It's so powerful, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, and there are others we can talk about as well, but that one, when you ask the question, those, I, I have several examples like that in my head. Um, that one really stands out. You see that board. a lot though, just on the timing piece, not on the leadership piece though, Jimmy, I've seen a lot of times where, Companies have a really good technology and they're just way too early to market. Yeah. 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 And they, and then, and then sometimes the investors want to give up too soon. Right. Yes. Which was the case here. Right. Yeah. Very much. So, so Jim, as a board member, how do you, cause belief is a tough one, right? Because like sometimes it's blind passion and sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's conviction kind of based on belief comes kind of like evidence in the purpose. I always thought that belief is like, it comes from passion and passion comes from evidence in the purpose, in my opinion. And so how as a board member, do you, uh, do you roll with that? Like, I'm sure you've had other examples where people are just like, well, I believe, I believe, and they're just committed and like there's it's not going to work out that their belief is is not is not based yeah. on evidence i think as a board member john this is you know back to your initial comments and and topics that we talked about um this can also be a little bit of the curse of having a sort of technology perspective and background yeah. right it's easy to believe right uh, you can convince yourself. And so, you know, in my case as being, you know, someone who both looks through the lens of product and value creation and sort of that, 
that, that logic story, right? Like this makes sense. This should work, right? Um, it, it's it's sometimes easy to get caught up in the belief. So you do have to look for evidence, and you do have to look for what are we going to do differently to make things turn around here in cases where it's not going well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I have seen it, right? I've sat on boards uh, in one case in in mind, another Boston-based company. Um, I mean, we were working on, you know, I, I often use this terminology, you know, act two, right? So this company had grown up, it was a public company, it was doing, it had done really well, but their market was getting harder they needed to figure out other products to take to market where they could leverage their go-to-market channel and their customer base. And um, they created Act 2. We created Act 2. And Act 2 made a lot of sense, right? Like it was so clear how we created value. It was tangible value. It was measurable. It showed up on the PL. There were reasons to spend money on this. And we just couldn't make it work. We just couldn't make it work, right? And I think that's an example where, um, you know, we 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 didn't listen closely enough to the market signals that we were getting, right? And we couldn't explain why the dogs weren't eating this dog food, but they weren't. And we were so convinced that they would that we kept going, right? Ultimately, the company was sold, uh, was acquired um, in a reasonable outcome. But um, we we were I, I guess some of it was uh, a bias in that it simply had to work. Right. If it didn't work, the company was going to stop growing. Yeah. And there was belief uh, built out of need, <laughs> right? Yeah. which uh, is also the wrong way to uh, to get there. But sometimes there's also a belief, Jim, maybe this might have been part of it. That an area that you don't really know about in the in a market seems a lot easier to crack than the market that you do know about and sometimes people go down that road and then the longer they're down that road they realize this road's even longer than we thought and then yeah sometimes they just run out of money just cuz they just can't get there in time and some of that goes to a little bit of innocence and and lack of a true understanding or investigation of the marketplace this is what I've yeah, seen I think that's right. also. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we, um, we teach entrepreneurship at the Sloan school, right? And if you sit through any of these, any of these courses uh, and you listen to what, what's talked about there, um, probably the number one topic is what we call primary market research. And it's something that nobody is good at, right? Unless they're in pre-revenue, just finding a customer base, right? Um, Primary market research, who's your customer? You know, what's the buying process? How are they gonna buy? How you create value for them? You know, why is that value differentiated? Um, And, you know, it's really hard to do because it requires that you go and you talk to customers, you talk to the market without the lens of your product offering, right? It's really understanding the customer's need and not tainting it with, you know, your view on the world, right? 
Um, and I think that's, um, to me, I think that's probably a great lesson that executives should take away who are in companies that are trying to figure out act two, right? Mm. Um, because it's, it's the miss it's, it's where people, it's exactly what you just said. They go down some go to market path. They think it's going to be easier because some institutional knowledge they have says it will be, but in reality, it's not, but it was a knowable unknown, right? They could have done the work to answer the question before they went and hired 40 salespeople to go and attack that market. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So Jim on the, um, I've had the great fortune to be a guest of yours at MIT, um, which is near Worcester. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Uh, I was just, I was uh, really impressed with the people that were sitting in those chairs. I, I, it's not that I wasn't planning to be impressed when I spoke to them, but I was really, really impressed with the, um, just the intensity, the passion, the um, commitment to the openness to learning um, you're spending a lot of time with entrepreneurs. Um, you're doing it in the stage of investment that you're doing. You're also doing it at at uh, at MIT. Can you give us kind of some common characteristics of entrepreneurship? And like, there's a lot of listeners that are like, oh, I, you know, I I'd love to go do that. I'd love to go be an entrepreneur, what have you. And I had, you know, a really kind of cool experience 22, 22 years ago of starting force management. But I got to tell you, it's like, it, it was a, it was an incredible learning experience, learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about a, a lot of things. What are you seeing out there right now? Things that are standing out for you for entrepreneurship. What are some of the common characteristics of those that make it? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you. Um, when I talk to when I talk to younger people about this and about um, their desire to be an entrepreneur, because everybody seems to want to be an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Um, there's some cachet that comes with it, I guess. Um, there's some some stature that comes with it. People think maybe there's some money that comes with it. Um, and there can be for sure. Um, but those can't be the reasons that you do it. And I spend, um, you know, the first 30 minutes of any conversation with somebody or with a group of people about this, basically trying to talk them out of it by explaining, and you know, I mean, you went through it starting force management by explaining how hard it is by explaining the weight of the obligation that you take on when you hire someone and you have mm -hmm. to make payroll and pay them, you know, their family is dependent on it. You know, their, their kids education is dependent on it. The weight that you take on your shoulders when you take money from an investor right? That you have in good faith taken their money and they are expecting you and you have accepted that expectation that you're going to create a return for them, right? I mean, that's a huge obligation. 
Um, you know, not to mention the burden on your personal life, on your, you know, work life balance, if you think that way. Um, it's intense. It's intense. And and it may not work. In fact, chances are it won't, right? And so um, I really think that it takes a pretty special kind of mindset um, to be successful as an entrepreneur. Um, and I think that mindset is one of, uh, and we talked about it a little bit, but it's it's one of perseverance. It's one of uh, deep belief. I'm on the board of a company right now and the founder, the company's going well. The market has changed for raising capital. And this guy was just approached by a, a venture capitalist whose offer he turned down four months ago. And they approached him with a lower offer and basically said, hey, you screwed up. You know, you should take this offer. This is a good deal, you know, in this market. And he just said, no. Just said, absolutely no, we're building a better company than that. This is a bigger story than that. This is more important than that. And there's an awful lot in that sort of sheer force of will that, you know, this entrepreneur brings to it. I think you have to be really smart. You have to be really ready to dig into the details. You know, it's like we talked about these, these, uh, this growth through the management ranks idea, right? When you're starting a company, you're that you're that frontline manager, right? You're that person, right? Everything rolls up to you. And you've got to build a team, inspire a team, have a great idea, find a customer, figure out how you create value for that customer, figure out how to repeatedly take that product to market for that customer, create a culture in your company that's a one of success where people can feel successful and grow and feel like they're contributing and create that, you know, sort of dynamic growth environment. There's so much to do, right? And these entrepreneurs, they they have the the smarts, the drive, and maybe just enough of the craziness to make it happen. I think I they remember. also have, they have this crazy passion for their vision too. Yeah. And maybe that's the craziness you described, Jim. I, I kind of always see that I can feel like feel their passion and yeah. they're constantly describing their vision of where they want this to go. Like they can see it, they could feel it, they could taste it. Yep. And it's actually contagious when you get somebody that has that. And maybe that goes, that's what drives their, you know, gives them that perseverance. And also, like you said, a little bit of this craziness, right? Because some of them come off. And Kevin knows a couple that I know where they actually are. They come off a little crazy, but it's their yeah. passion that drives them like that. Well, you know, it's, um, I always found, you, I like the word that you used, um, contagious, right? That passion's a little bit contagious. And you, 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 know, you think about this leadership conversation again, and you think about, well, what tools do you have as a leader to inspire people in your organization, right? And this is one of those tools, right? This is that, you know, you are joining us on a mission to build something great, right? To build something that can change the world, right? 
And that's that mission, right? That's the that's the 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 passion that the founder can bring, that the entrepreneur can bring, that's so contagious that people can rally behind, right? And they can latch onto and they can adorn that vision with lots of detail, right? That makes it something really tangible. Um, that's magic when that happened, right? Like that happened at PTC. Right. We we had that vision of this sort of fully integrated design and manufacturing process. And we kept marching down that path and we adorned that vision with value and products and culture and all these things that made that company grow. Um, and and honestly, it's <laughs> work having spent some time, uh, you know, working in air quotes, you know, teaching. Uh, and spending time on the board at work uh, in Worcester, John, um, <laughs> you know, you realize that in a, in an academic environment, in a in a government environment, you don't actually have this tool. You don't have this kind of um, greater good building something, you know, really substantial that's going to change the world tool. You have other motivations in those environments. Um, and I think that makes those environments uh, quite a bit more challenging to lead in because you don't have this this one tool that's uh, that's at least in my experience proven to be incredibly important. You also have some differences. Like I know in my case, I was forty years old when I became an entrepreneur, and I had already been in corporate America for you know for twenty years, and I remember distinctly. Like there's a lot of pros for that, right? Because you've, I, you know, I worked at PTC, one of the most, one of the greatest go-to-market, you know, execution companies on the planet. I worked for Xerox, uh, one of the greatest development companies on the planet and training people. And so I had great experiences, but like the, the downside is I remember being in a hotel room with my business partner in the same hotel room while he's snoring away. And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking to myself, this happened to me a lot. I would say to myself, I used to be a senior vice president. <laughs> and, and so you're kind of, you're longing yeah. for like those, those days. But I, I remember vividly and like today now, like on TikTok, they have these like memes and stuff. Like, I don't know if you've seen it when, you know, you realize that nobody's coming, nobody's coming. And like, it's, it's on you. Yeah. And so, so there were pros and cons to that. And now I, you know, Jim, you're spending most of your time with, with like younger folks that come up with a, a, a great technology, a great technical advantage. And they start and, and they are not burdened with what, they used to have or what it used to be. So there's some great advantages there, but then there's also disadvantages just in experience. And yeah. so it's, it's, it, there's both sides of the fence, which are probably, um, probably you've seen all, all spectrums of that. Well, and that's where we can help. Right. I mean, you know, th those of us that have a little more gray hair and have seen the movie a few times. Yeah. Right. This is this is what I really enjoy doing today. Right. Is working with, you know, these earlier stage businesses with often, you know, less experienced entrepreneurs who have that passion and have that vision, but they need help seeing around corners. Right. Yeah. And uh, and so that's that's why I sit on boards and, you know, work with, you know, a couple of different venture firms and do this stuff at MIT. It's um, it's a great pleasure in life to be able to offer that perspective to somebody who can take advantage of it. 
Well, why did both of you guys, when we went, Grant Wilson and I went to both of you and talked to uh, talk to you about what we were going to do, both of you said, "Don't do it." Why did you? Why did you tell us that? <laughs> you just said, right? You were a senior vice president, John. That's right. <laughs> right. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, it's also because. You were going to be training all week and you had to sell all week at the same time. So yeah, that was yeah. going to be a pretty difficult challenge for a number of years, but you guys wound up pulling it off. You guys, hey, Jim, let's talk about, uh, if it's all right, a personal passion that you have for flying. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about, I know you took a really long trip all through Asia and stuff a couple of years ago. Yeah. Talk about where that passion came from. And um, tell us a little bit about it. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm very active in the, in the general aviation world. Um, I fly two different airplanes today. One's kind of a go places machine uh, and one's kind of a low and slow, you know, fly around the mountains and sightsee and relax machine. Um, I've been flying for a long time. I got, I got my license on my birthday in 1987. So wow. I graduated from college. Um, and it, it's funny, you asked where that came from. Um, my mother was actually a pilot in World War II. Um, wow. She was part of the Civil Air Patrol. And wow. she was down in Virginia, and she used to fly out over the Chesapeake Bay uh, in a little tailor craft uh, airplane, two-seater airplane, looking for German U-boats, looking for yes. subs. And um, it's interesting. I didn't really know that story until a little bit later in life. And so the actual inspiration for me, uh, believe it or not, was my high school librarian, Mrs. Judd. Um, Mrs. Judd, when I was either a junior or senior in high school, had a Cessna 172 at the local airport. And she offered a ride to my friend Scott and myself. And we went up uh, for a little flight with her around the local area. This was in upstate New York. And, um, and we were both hooked. And of course, she'd probably go to jail today for doing that, right? But we were, <laughs> right. We, we were both hooked. And, and Scott ended up committing his entire life to aviation. So he's, uh, he went on and got all his flight ratings, got all his mechanic ratings. He flies um, for, a, for a corporation. He's a corporate pilot and mechanic. And he's, his whole career has been built around that. And I ended up adopting it as, you know, sort of my primary hobby in life and going, went on and I didn't have any money to get my license until later on, uh, which is why I didn't do it sooner, but I, I did it. I did it as a fairly young person, been flying ever since then. And, you know, we use the airplane for all kinds of stuff. Um, the, the, the trip that you mentioned in 2018, we did a flight uh, around the world. So we flew from, from Stowe, Vermont, where I am now, um, into Canada, Quebec City. And then from Quebec City, we went across the Atlantic, uh, making stops in Greenland and Iceland and Ireland and throughout Europe, uh, into the Middle East, throughout the Middle East, into um, India, Southeast Asia, throughout Southeast Asia, uh, into Hong Kong and Japan, Taiwan, Japan. Uh, through both islands of Japan uh, onto the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia and through two cities in Russia and then back into Anchorage, Alaska, and then back down into the continental United States and Seattle. Uh, 26 countries and 70 days of flying. 
Uh, absolutely the trip of a lifetime. You know, and like so many of us who have had these careers that we've had, we've traveled all over the world, right? right. We've been to many of these places. But all I've ever seen has been the inside of conference rooms and taxis. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. this was a very different experience, right? Because we went to all these places and we would stay for anywhere from two to three days. And during those two to three days, we would have some downtime. We would experience, you know, the, the local culture. Um, just a phenomenal, phenomenal trip. Uh, we did another one uh, the year after, um, where we did South, we went to South America and in South America, the goal was to circumnavigate the whole continent of South America. Um, we ended up getting cut a bit short by COVID. Uh, yeah. So interestingly, I remember this one, COVID was just becoming a big deal uh, in the U S um, there was not yet a single case reported in South America. So we, you know, there's five airplanes, right? It's a group of us. We're all flying the same type of airplane and we're in South America and we're in Bariloche, Argentina, and it's beautiful, right? Everything's great. No, there's no, no COVID whatsoever. And the organizer back in Florida is saying, you guys need to get the hell out of there. You need to get back home now. And we're like, no, we don't. This is fantastic, right? The wine's good. The people are friendly. It's a beautiful place and there's no COVID. Why would we leave? And uh, what, what we miscalculated in that was not the actual, uh, you know, health risk of the disease, but rather the political risk. And mm -hmm. what we didn't realize was that everybody was going to start closing their borders. So we ended up at the last minute. We, uh, we were literally, our, literally right? we were in our yeah. hotel room in Bariloche and we got a note pushed under the door that said from this point forward, all foreign visitors are restricted to their room until their departure time. Like we, they, we were told we literally had to stay in our room until we were going to be leaving the country. So we decided that was it. So we, we got out and we left and we spent a day flying from Bariloche. We went back to Chile. We went back to, through Peru. Um, and, and as we were going, borders were literally closing behind us. In fact, in one case, we had to get special permission to land in the country just for fuel. The people coming to work had to have special governmental permission to come fuel our airplanes and they couldn't do anything else. And we got into Panama and we landed in Panama at 7 p.m. They closed the border at Panama at midnight that night. And the next morning we got into South Florida and we got to South Florida and like everything was fine. Right. It's like there was no <laughs> pandemic at all. <laughs> Never was COVID. In Florida. Uh, what COVID. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's been a great, great part of my life, John. Uh, it, I do a lot with it. I have a lot of passion for it. Um, I spend a lot of time, you know, training, learning, educating myself, um, you know, executing. It's um, it's uh, it's really become a way of life for for me and my family. So Johnny's putting the pontoons. I talked to Jim a couple of weeks ago. He's putting the pontoons on one of his uh, on one of his planes, and he's going to drop down into some areas and uh, just go fishing right off the right off the plane. Are you up for it? Come on, yeah. really? Let's go fishing. do it, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that would be awesome. Yep. Hey, Jim, we uh, we 
love spending time with you. We were so appreciative of you, um, being with us and sharing your, you know, your background, your perspectives. I got a couple of big takeaways from, you know, one of the themes that you mentioned today, um, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but you kept talking about the value you kept talking about. And basically what I wrote down was, you know, always having an outside in versus an inside out mentality and investing in product market fit in, um, you know, being an entrepreneur, what have you, that was a huge uh, takeaway for me. Um, really, really love your background. Uh, love the, um, the stories that you told. And I'm just really, really appreciative of you spending time with our audience and, and us. Thanks, brother. Thank you, guys. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. Appreciate you spending time with me. So for me, I always appreciated working with you. You're a really, really special guy, uh, helping a lot of people these days. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And I'm sure our audience is going to take away a lot of golden nuggets from your discussion. Thanks, Jim. Best thank wishes you, to you, buddy. Thank you both. It's been a great You're the man. And Appreciate for you, everybody God. listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.